Welcome to episode four of the Prime Learning Podcast. The mission of Prime Learning is to create relevant and authentic learning experiences for students to better prepare them for an uncertain future. So here we are, episode four. Uh, first three episodes, I really documented my journey from um, literally as a child to to where I am today in my role as a as an e-learning specialist, so a digital learning coach, and then uh, an innovation class teacher. So when I say where I am today, well, where is here? So in this podcast episode, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, how I'm doing it, and where I hope it leads to. So as we left off on episode three, I just mentioned that I am uh, piloting a class at our high school. It's called Innovation and Open Source Learning. And this has actually been something I've been thinking about, the concept, not the name, but for a long time. When I first heard about, learned about Genius Hour, and I actually worked uh, during my hiatus from teaching for a few months, the company I worked for, it was it was mandated that all employees take 20% of their work time to explore things, learn things, uh, pursue things that are of interest to them that would in some way connect to the job. And it was hard because I had this guilt that I should be doing something that's more within the confines of my job description and those around me did as well so people that I um, that reported to me that I reported to they they also struggled with this so for me it it illustrated a bigger problem the bigger problem is you can't just say you need to take 20% of your time to learn about something that's interesting to you because honestly we're not wired to know how to do that and is that a result or a byproduct of going through the traditional public school system? I don't know. Maybe it's self-imposed. I don't know if that's the issue either. But it was something that I struggled with. And I think a lot of organizations also struggle with a similar similar phenomenon. It's great on paper to say we give our employees time, but what do you do with that? How do you support them? How do you hold them accountable? How do you encourage them? How do you ask them to share what they're learning? Um, so it's it's truly an organizational culture shift. It's not just adding in or making a, a change to 20% of the day or week. Same thing's true in schools. When I started le- learning about G- the Genius Hour movement in schools, it was really intriguing to me. But my default response was, how do we know that kids are learning? How do we hold kids accountable? What about kids that are going to abuse the time? and play video games or mess around or talk to their friends or not pursue. And I think that's one of the traits of being a a teacher and doing it for a while is it's too easy to focus on the what-ifs and the negatives. So yeah, you might say, what if Johnny decides to play Plants vs. Zombies for that 20 minutes a day? But what if Susie discovers a passion for veterinary and veterinary medicine and you know connects with people that are that are in the field and she actually feeds and fuels that interest and that could eventually become a career choice for her 
So, we, you know, we focus on the negatives, but sometimes we lose sight of the positives. And when it comes to genius hour or 20% time or whatever you want to call it, I think the potential upside and the potential benefit far outweighs any potential uh, negative. But a lot of this is theory and a lot of this is based on other people's experiences. So I've been very cautious to advocate for Genius Hour. Sure, I've, I've encouraged teachers in my school corporation. We have about a half dozen different books that address just that subject, how to make Genius Hour and passion-based learning work for you. Um, everything from a guidebook to a toolkit to uh, a book of um, you know, anecdotal notes about the teacher's experiences with it. But I can't really advocate for something until I experience it myself. So when we went through the process, started the process of applying for the uh, state course waiver to pilot an innovation class at our high school, my micro focus was on this class. One period a day, 20 students max, because I needed to develop some experience with this type of learning environment. The type of learning environment where it's not compliance-based, where it's not rows of desks with a teacher talking. It's truly student-driven work. And the thing that's driving the students is their motivation. Daniel Pink, who has put out a very profound... Um, TED Talk on the you know the science of motivation, the mystery of motivation. He basically breaks it down into three things. People are motivated when they have autonomy. So when they have some choice and some independence. And that's interesting. And we've actually seen this where we might, you know, I'm, I'm working with an art teacher a middle school art teacher and he's he's seen where if he would if if he would just assign a you know like a coil pot project to kids some of them would balk at that but interestingly enough if given the choice between two or three different projects to work on those same students exhibit behaviors that indicate that they would have chosen the coil pot so sometimes just letting students choose the path is a motivation. So that's, that's one thing is the autonomy, the choice. The other thing that's, that's a motivator is mastery. Mastery. So what that comes down to is skills acquisition. If a student who has the ability to learn new skills, develop new skills as part of a project, that's a motivator. It's an intrinsic motivation. The ability to master a, a craft or a skill. So mastery and autonomy. And then the third piece of the, the, the mystery of motivation is purpose. Is what you're doing benefiting someone other than yourself? And that's an interesting concept when we are talking about adolescents and young adults. They're ne not necessarily pre-wired with a whole heck of a lot of empathy or external view of the world. But deep down inside, the feeling they get 
whether they admit it or not or recognize it or not, the feeling that they get by completing work that's good work, that's benefiting other people, is in, in and of itself a motivator. So those are the three guiding principles of this innovation class. It's also the three guiding principles of Genius Hour. Student choice, the ability to learn new skills that are meaningful, and then also the ability to and potential of helping other people. So again, the micro view was one class, one period, one year. The macro, the big picture is I would love to be able to offer this class multiple periods a day for our high school students. I would also love to offer it as a course at the middle school. Now there's a lot and I, in my role as a district level uh, coach, a digital learning coach, I've learned a lot about um, how schools operate. What are some motivating forces? What are some drives? Uh, what are some limitations? What are some biases? How how hard it is to change things because this, this uh, monster of public education is so deeply rooted in tradition. It's tough to change. So I know that expanding this to three, four, five periods a day at the high school and offering it as a class at the at the at the middle schools is a it's a it's not a dream it's a goal and I've I've just finished reading the book Run Like a Pirate by Adam Welcome and the book is really centered around his one year adventure of running a marathon a month for 12 months and um, I've just started running within the last six or seven months and started reading his book towards the tail end of that journey and just his 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 way that he describes the races the energy the highs the lows the way to deal with pain uh, how to develop discipline how to include uh, become part of a running community how to make it as much of a part of your day as brushing your teeth or eating dinner uh, it has to be done that way so i've been able to adopt a lot of his his principles that have helped make me uh, a more effective runner and and competitor but one of the things that he said in the kind of the epilogue of the book was there is a difference, big difference between dreams and goals. If dreams don't happen, it really doesn't have a significant impact on your day-to-day life. If goals aren't met, goals don't happen, that's a motivator. And it, it, it has the potential of you know, motivate, motivating us to work harder or put us into a state of depression or self-doubt. So... In terms of expanding this class and scaling it, it is a goal to um, grow it to at least three periods a day next year at the high school. Now, what does that mean for me? I don't know. Am I am I hoping that I am a part of that expansion and a driving force? And because it's going to take more than just myself and my the co-teacher that are that are currently teaching this pilot course, it's going to take a even stronger commitment from the district level administration, which has been extremely supportive so far. Extremely, 
Uh, it's going to take a lot more than just one or two people saying, hey, we need to be creating authentic opportunities for students to find and solve find and solve interesting problems, to quote Seth Godin. That's what the class is about. Find and solve interesting problems. And the way we do that is by looking at the... We have to train ourselves to look at the world through a different lens. We have to abandon the practice of piling on to complaining. That does absolutely nothing to improve the situation. It's something that I've worked very hard, very hard, and it's a journey, and I still have a long way to go. But I am training myself every day to look at the world not as full of problems, but as full of opportunities. Because if you look at the people that are successful, and then how, so how you measure success or how you measure winning might be different than your colleague, even your spouse. If you're a teacher, it's going to be possibly different than what your students think. But my definition of success is we love what we do. We are afforded the standard of living that we need. Notice I said need. And we are in some way serving other people. That sounds that sounds eerily close to Daniel Pink's definition of drive and motivation. That's the thing that gets you out of bed every day. I love the thing that I do. I love the people that I do it with. What I'm doing is important work and it's going to benefit other people. That's it. If you had to sum up what's the secret to life, it's probably, in my opinion, obtaining that. I I work with a lot of... No, I don't work with. I know of a lot of people that are absolutely miserable in their current job, their current situation. Either they think they're underemployed, so they're doing work that's beneath them, which is which is probably true, or they're in a rut, they're doing a job that they're qualified for, but it's not giving them anything other than a paycheck. And the thing that I just want to scream from the mountaintops is, it's 2018, and you're only scratching the surface on income generating opportunities. And I try to direct them to people like Tom Bilyeu. I try to direct them to people like Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, because they, for me, they have, they have, that's their mission is to open up people's eyes to the opportunities that are in front of them. In a recent podcast from Don Wettrick on his Started Up podcast, he was interviewing a superintendent from, I believe, New Jersey. And that's the mantra that he is, that's the flag he's waving in his school, is that we need to get our students and our teachers to look at the world in that way. It is nothing but opportunity. It really is. It's nothing but opportunity. We have to look at the world that way. Um, So... Every opportunity that we can we can have to open people's eyes to the to the world that a lot of the jobs that were maybe are here today won't be here in five six years. So what is it you're going to do? Um, what what we what we need to do is look to the people that seem to be winning. Why are they winning? 
And almost to the person, I think what it comes down to is they looked at an existing opportunity in the form of a problem that people are complaining about or not happy about. They have either individually or assembled a team. They have designed solutions to those problems. Everyone from Elon Musk to Bill Gates um, to, I, I don't have the names right off right offhand, but um, you know, the, the founders of, of Uber, the founders of Airbnb, they have found a problem, looked at it as an opportunity, invested their time, their resources, assembled a team, took a risk, and they're winning. They're winning. Now, of course, all we hear about are the wins. We don't always hear about the losses. Because in my estimation, there's probably a heck of a lot more losses than there are wins. But those people keep people that, that have it, that have the gift, that have the knack to live that life, the life of an entrepreneur, they are, they are intentionally putting themselves in situations where they know there's a high risk of failure. They try things that are uncomfortable because it's just like a it's just like an athlete conditioning their body. These these founders and influencers are conditioning their mind to be able to handle it when things don't go well. They're they're extremely reflective. They're extremely hard on themselves. They have a high standard of excellence and they surround themselves with the right people. They don't surround themselves with people that are identical to them. They surround themselves with people that will challenge them and make them better. And probably most importantly, we talked about this in class yesterday, they supplement each other's weaknesses. I've just started... Um, actually, I just finished the reading portion of Strength Finders 2.0, which is a which is a book that is um, it's a it's a quick read, but really the heart of it is the assessment. And I haven't taken the test yet, but basically it 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 tells you what your strengths are, either whether you recognize them or not. The whole goal is focus your energy on your strengths, because your return on investment is going to be much higher than focusing your time and energy on things that you're not good at. In terms of starting a business or starting a nonprofit or starting a movement, if there's things that you are not good at, you have really three choices. Choice one, quit. Choice two, spend your time getting good at it, which means that it's going to be at the expense of the things that you are good at, which are going to be other parts of the the startup. And the third piece of it is outsource it. Outsource your weaknesses. Another Gary Vee reference. Outsource your weaknesses. If there's things that you identify that you're not good at, but they're integral parts of you starting up whatever it is you're starting up, outsource it. So this is all coming back to networking and, and, and surrounding yourself virtually or physically with strong, positive people. Help them out every opportunity you can because someday they're going to be in a position to help you. So that is really the heart of the Innovation and Open Source class. I would say out of the 17 students, there's a few that I think came to the class with some of those, those principles, some of those traits, some of those world views and understandings. What we've spent the last three and a half weeks focusing on is expanding their worldview, expanding their view of themselves, and really trying to get them to look at the world as 
full of opportunities, not full of problems. Because those that can stand out by by coming up with creative creative solutions to problems, the world belongs to them. Not in like a James Bond villain way, but the world belongs to them. They will literally be able to do whatever they want to do in life. That's what's so critical about this class. They're given a period a day for an entire year to try things, pursue things. Most will fail. Some will succeed. Some students will solidify their purpose in life. Some students will solidify that something is not their purpose in life, which I think is equally valuable because they don't need to invest into four to six years of college to find out that they don't want to be a lawyer or they don't want to be an accountant or they don't want to be a nurse or whatever it is. That's the real power of this class. That is the thing that's going to transform futures for kids. And it's not anything I'm going to do. It's not anything that my co-teacher is going to do. Because the biggest resource we can provide for our students right now is time. And that's what we're doing. That's really, in a nutshell, what the vision of primed learning is. It's not just this class. It's not just the activities that we're doing. It's not me. It is examining what we can do to provide these authentic and relevant learning experiences for students. It's also meaning that teachers, and I'm working on it myself, need to be more reflective about and honest about what it is that they're doing and how that skill transfers to the student's future. Now, the, the elephant in the room, which... I had that conversation with my class yesterday about that saying, the elephant in the room. Um, Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure, like, so the way we use the term is like, elephant in the room. Like, everybody sees it, but nobody's talking about it. Here's my thing. If there's literally an elephant in a room, I'm pretty sure someone's going to mention something. But anyway, I digress. But the elephant in the room is, unfortunately, schools are measured by how well they perform on standardized assessments. And you are welcome to your own opinion on the value of those things. Um, I don't don't lean heavily one way or the other. Worst thing in the world, best thing in the world. I'm not 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 extreme. Um, I, I do think there's an accountability piece but I, but I also think that if students were truly, truly developing deep levels of understanding about content and concepts and skills, then a, then a test would measure that. So, so that's kind of my thought on that. It's is is I I don't think there should be as much weight placed on it. But I also think we we need to at least be open to the idea that. If we were truly creating the best learning opportunities and most relevant and authentic opportunities for our students to make the the content meaningful, um, then then we would see students exhibit this on a standardized test. But again, this is that's just my personal opinion on it. So that is uh, that's a little bit about what I want to talk about for for where I am, uh, where here is, and. 
I'm excited. I'm nervous. Next week, we're starting the project phase of the class where students will start identifying their projects that they would like to pursue. They will do a project proposal. We'll talk about how these are going to be evaluated. Um, we're trying not to stress, focus on grades, but our, you know, I have 11th and 12th grade students in the class and they've been conditioned to worry about grades. So I want to make sure that they know that it's important and that it's, they're going to be held accountable, but I also want them to know that the, the most important part of this is the experience, the takeaways, the reflections and what they learn. And that's not going to be measured by, by a test. So that's it for this, this week's podcast. And I look forward to talking to you soon until then hang in there.